here's a headline from the Financial Post just a few days ago. Who's killing free internet speech? Canada's culture industry. Bill C-10 is a national embarrassment, and Canada's cultural sector needs to do the right thing and step away from it. That's just the first sentence in an article, a scathing article, written by the former vice chair of the CRTC, Peter Menzies. Mr. Menzies joins us this morning from Regina. Mr. Menzies, Peter, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you very much. It's great to have you with us, Peter. Uh, a lot of people still catching up. It's great to have you, especially on a weekend when we have a chance, all of us, to take a second look at the news stories that have been swirling around us for the past several days. And you sit down on a Sunday morning over a cup of coffee or perhaps a second cup, Peter, and you start to look back at some of the stories that have unfolded over the past few days. And Canadians from coast to coast to coast are very aware of something called Bill C-10 because it's all about free speech. But in terms of actual awareness, Peter, that's where a lot of it stops right there. There's this thing called C10 uh, that's going to going to threaten free speech on the Internet. They want, as somebody said in the paper the other day, they're coming after your cat videos. So, Peter, what's the real <laughs> deal? What is what is Bill C10 really all about? Well, what Bill C10 is really all about is and it's a little wonder people have trouble getting their heads around it because it's breathtaking. Um, the government has decided that in order to modernize its communications legislation, it's going to take something called the Broadcasting Act um, under the uh, auspices of something called the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission mm -hmm. and regulate the Internet, which is a much, much different entity than radio television. Um, Indeed, you know some of the same activities occur over it, mm -hmm. but the idea that um, an institution built to do one thing can be easily adapted to uh, regulate another thing, a very mo much more modern thing, with all due respect to a radio station, um, <laughs> is is breathtaking. And in order to do it, they're going to regulate. Uh, they've claimed. They've claimed authority over everything, much of it still mm -hmm. to be defined and by the regulator, but they want to regulate what is known as user-generated content, which, in other words, your posts, your videos of your grandchildren, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Peter, the other thing that some Canadians may recall, but it goes back a couple of decades, when the internet was really starting to come on and become a, a, a very much a part of Canadian life, uh, the questions became, and it came, some of them came from the cultural sector, some of them came from the broadcasting sector, who's in charge of all of this? Who's going to be the, the internet cops? And at that time, as I recall, the CRTC was approached and asked would you like to be in charge of the internet in addition to your other responsibilities? And Peter, I don't know whether you were at the commission at that time or not, but as I recall, the answer from the CRTC at the time was a resounding, no, we're rather busy, thank you very much, and we don't really want to deal with this at all. So why the change of heart? Yeah, the CRTC has done that uh, two or three times. Uh, this came about because the government, not because the CRTC changed its mind, but because the government decided that the CRTC should take this over. This was the place. And the government did that after a lot of pressure from lobby groups, um, lobby groups representing traditional television broadcasters, lobby groups representing uh, music groups, 
Um, they sort of brand themselves as Canada's cultural sector in terms right. of that. They all have their interests are deeply vested in the current system, which is really designed to divvy up the pie and make sure everybody gets their fair share. It's not based on uh, consumer interests. The consumer or citizen isn't even mentioned in the Broadcasting Act, other than in a passing reference to the CBC. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Broadcasting Act isn't about your, your listeners uh, in terms of that. It's not about serving their needs. It's about serving the needs of the people who operate the companies inside their system. So it was pressure from those groups um, who felt threatened by the freedom of the Internet. Um, it's sort of like we're all members of this one club and it all works really well for us. But, hey, wait a second, there's a bunch of people outside the club and they're doing some of the stuff that we're doing and stop them. So that's mm -hmm. what's happening. So, okay, so the government has decided that, uh, and, and the popular part of this bill, you'll have to admit, Mr. Menzies, is we're going to stick it to the man. All of these huge uh, multinational production companies, Netflix, of course, leading the parade, coming to Canada and, and, and other uh, platforms like Facebook coming to Canada and providing services to Canadians, uh, essentially uh, depriving income from the, the, the sources that Canadians would have gone to otherwise so we're going to stick it to the man and we're going to get millions and if not hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties and payments for canadians uh because they're not they're not paying their fair share and so canadians like fair we're we're a fair-minded people so that has some degree of appeal to it so while we're holding up the the shiny object in one hand talking about sticking it to the man and getting a fair deal with the other hand we're sliding through this, giving ourselves permission to monitor and indeed control, if necessary, all content going to the Internet. That's a stretch and a half, isn't it, Peter? <laughs> well, it is. Like, if you want to stick it to the man, stick it to the man, right? Don't stick it to me, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, taxing these web giants, as, as, as they like to call them, is a very good idea. I mean, sure. there are lots of things that can be done. There's a competition act. There's the there's the the income tax act. There's there's the privacy the privacy uh, legislation. There's tons of stuff that can be used to effectively uh, mitigate the bad behavior of of anybody on the internet or companies in any sector of society. Mm. Right? And and in terms of taxation, if you, taxing them is a good idea, and there's sort of international um, initiatives underway in terms of that. But let us all share, right? What, what would be happening with this in taxing them is, is you tax them and you give the money to a little select group, right, of, right. of people who are already doing very well. And in terms of the streaming companies, the last 10 years for the Canadian creative sector, film and television producers have been the best in their history. Their industry has grown by 80%. Mm -hmm. Netflix and those guys need content. And they've been investing in it, and a lot, a lot of it in Canada. There is no crisis in Canadian content. It's never been better. The last two years pre-COVID were the best years in Canada for overall film and television production, francophone film and television production, certified CanCon film and television production. The industry was going great. So if you're going to regulate the money from them, they're just going to take it out of their other investment. There is not going to be any more money. 
In fact, there might be a good deal less because of the uncertainty you're putting into the system. It'll take the CRTC years to figure out the rules on this. Well, it's it, just it, not it's, a very good piece of legislation. <laughs> no, it, it's not. And and um, I, I suppose again, this is uh, and you you acknowledge the fact that as we began our conversation this morning, Peter, that there are many many Canadians this weekend who are just trying to sort this out, just trying to figure out exactly what it's all about. Mostly because of the fact that we recognize there are things that um, that are are there are there are several aspects to this bill that represent good things. However, you uh, also got together with another former colleague from the CRTC, a former chair, Conrad von Finkelstein, and the two of you uh, wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail the other day uh, saying Heritage Minister Stephen Gilbo should start fresh on Bill C-10. It's so complicated, and it's such the water is so muddy by now. Your, your suggestion basically is, look, just throw the darn thing out and start all over again. What sort of appetite but before we take a break for the news quickly if you can what sort of appetite do you sense if at all on the part of the government of canada to do just that i don't sense any on the part of the government of canada i mean uh, in order to come up with this as a solution to whatever it is they're trying to solve you really can't under have no understanding of the internet um because like i said the crtc was built for a closed network for a, for a world of, of spectrum mm-hmm. where spectrum is a public resource. They, the radio waves that you broadcast on are publicly owned. Yes. So the, so the crown has an interest in governing how you may use them. If it grants you the permission to use them and you voluntarily agree to certain terms and conditions as to how you will conduct yourself um, accordingly. Can't uh, do that the on internet, the internet. Can you? No. no, the internet. Yeah, so that system was about controlling the gatekeepers. Right, right. right. Peter Menzies is with us. Mr. Menzies joining us from Regina this morning is a former vice chair of the CRTC. Peter is with us this morning to talk about Bill C-10. And uh, he uh, wrote a piece in the Financial Post a few days ago uh, entitled, Who's Killing Free Internet Speech? Canada's culture industry. He went on to say Bill C-10 is a national embarrassment and Canada's cultural sector needs to do the right thing and step back. This bill was introduced in uh, November on United States Election Day. You pointed out, Peter, that the Mr. Gilbo, the heritage minister, brought in the, uh, the, uh, the act, which you say is very much stuffing the internet content 21st century stuff into the Broadcasting Act, which is a very 20th century uh, construction, and already even the notion of it was a poor fit, and in practice, in implementation, it's almost an impossible fit. So you suggest they go back to the table and start again, but you don't think they will. No, their instincts aren't there. I mean, I'm kind of hoping they will. I mean, this has turned into, like I said, an embarrassment for them, right? I mean, they're trying to do things with this bill. There, you'll hear talk and people say, well, the British are doing this, the French are doing that. Yes, the French got money from Netflix and that sort of stuff, but nobody got into the world of regulating you and me, mm-hmm. right? Um, like I said, you can, you can go get money from people. You can redistribute wealth. There's all kinds. You can protect privacy. You can manage algorithm use. You can, you know... Uh, watch for monopoly behavior. There's all kinds of stuff you can do that the, the internet is not the wild west, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the, 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 the speech laws, 
you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, you know, the hate speech, um, child pornography, all those sorts of hideous things are as illegal on the internet as they are in the rest of society. So it's not like it's, it's, it's a wild west. So it's, it's, it's already, um, you know, under control in, 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 in that sense. But yeah, their, their instincts are all wrong. They, they need to, uh, um, uh, what they're doing when they get into user-generated content, no other democracy in the world has gone that far. I mean, we're yeah. way out there beyond the pale. And you used a great line that would appeal particularly to British Columbians. I had a sense you knew that when you wrote it, Peter. Uh, here's the quote. To many, putting the CRTC in charge of the Internet is like putting a logging company in charge of the Great Bear Rainforest. <laughs> a very, very, a classic BC analogy, and congratulations for using one instead of the fox guarding the chickens for a change. Uh, but it's absolutely true, isn't it? We had we had Michael Geist on the show yesterday, Peter, and he was talking about this bill as well and described the the, the current government as the most anti-internet government in history. It's a pretty short history because the internet hasn't been around much but it's it's already quite an accomplishment i guess well it's it's actually it's really stunning because in almost every other way this government it certainly people can debate whether it is or whether it isn't but it certainly likes to portray itself as the most progressive government you know in the history of canada yeah whether it's you know on issues like climate change uh, that's one of the reasons for the great bear rainforest made a good analogy um you know, uh, climate change, uh, daycares, uh, uh, women's rights, trans rights, all kinds of, you know, progressive causes. Sure. But when it comes to the Internet, which is probably the most exciting and progressive thing that has happened since the invention of radio and broadcasting, right? Um, mm-hmm. They want to go back to the 1980s and live in this closed little world, right? I mean... The Internet has brought so many wonderful things. And, yeah, sure, there there are lots of problems with social media that come up. But there's a lot of wonderful things, you know, uh, that that, that come through that. The speed of communication, you know, I got friends I I probably never would have seen again in my life who can share their pictures of their grandchildren and children with me, Mm -hmm. the great moments in their life. It's it's a really, really special thing. And to see this so-called progressive government behaving in the most regressive, you know, sort of anti, uh, you know, progress. Uh, it's anti-progressive when it mm-hmm. comes to the internet. So Peter, what, what's the solution? Uh, if, if the, if, first of all, you're, you're a former CRTC vice chair, you recognize the need for regulation, uh, coming from, uh, re- reliable and credible sources. So if that does, first of all, do you agree that some measure of regulation is required on the internet? Or as you just said, is there sufficient, are there sufficient laws on the books governing all sorts of activity that occurs on social media that already serve as a, as a significant uh, series of regulations and, and an internet cop is not necessary. I don't think an internet cop is necessary in terms of that. Um, I, I think the, the, the onus uh, for the argument is always on the agents of change. And in this case, I, I don't think the government has defined what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and if you can't define what the problem is, then you can't find the solution. 
I do think, you know, that, that like I said, um, the laws that we have in place uh, could be could be applied. They could be sure. expanded. They could be worked on. There's, you know, like artificial, there's lots of issues like artificial intelligence, but they're, they're internet type issues. So to narrow their lens down so that they're looking, like I said, they're, they're looking at the internet as if it's cable. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that's the problem. And, and, and so the big tragedy behind this is not just that this regulation is misguided and likely going to be harmful to the industries it's trying to help and suppressing our free speech, right? It's that these other more important issues, like uh, the management of algorithms, like monopolies by Google and Facebook, mm-hmm. are getting overlooked. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're missing the big issues. And basically because they've been overwhelmed by lobbyists. I mean, they did not include, there was no public consultation on this legislation at all. Right. They never got to hear the voice of uh, the working man and woman in Canada. They just got to hear the voices of lobbyists from big cable companies and from uh, certain entitled segments of the creative industry. Now, the minister, Peter, to be fair, has said, uh, made some kind of a gesture vocally as to uh, a rethink of some kind and uh, something to the effect of, well, we really didn't intend this to to uh, mute free speech. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we're going to go back and we're, we're going to have a, a rethink, possibly a rewrite, and, and we're going to remove some of these uh, threatening clauses and, and so on. And, and, but they didn't actually do any of that. They talked about it, but didn't do anything, did they? No, they didn't do it at all. <laughs> they came back with something that just kind of, I don't know, made it sound like they were Oh, we did something new, but it's if anything, they doubled down on it, right? I mean, mm. they say, "Well, okay, we're we're only going to regulate it for discoverability." I mean, what's the first of all? What's the discoverability problem with with Canadian content on the internet, right? Like, mm. there's this thing called a search engine. I mean, if you want to find Canadian content on Netflix, go to the search it'll tool. It'll type take in you Canadian. seconds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I did that like months ago. And then, it, you know, it sticks, right? And the Canadian content shows up again, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it, so it, you're doing all, again, define the problem, show, show where the problem is, and, and then use the appropriate tools for the solution. Indeed. So it's an election year. Final question to you, Peter Menzies, and we're really grateful for your time here on a Sunday morning. Uh, It's an election year. Uh, A lot of people are quite surprised by the gall behind this particular bill. Uh, Do you see uh, this becoming an issue of of sorts during an election year? Um, I hope so, because it's the sort of change that you're going to make. I mean, if you're going to get into suppressing people's charter rights, um, you have to have a damn good reason for doing it. And we have mm. to have a damn good debate in society over whether it's, whether it's needed or not uh, in terms of that. But, I mean, if you think C-10 is something, wait until you get a load of what they've got coming next um, with their online harms bill. That'll really light you up. Well, well, it, it sounds like the... You haven't like seen the, anything yet. 
Oh, brother. Well, this sounds like the makings, uh, the beginnings, at least, Peter, of another conversation, I hope, because, uh, and I, it doesn't sound like a, a, a positive conversation, but it sounds like the sort of chat you and I need to have to make sure uh, people here in Vancouver understand exactly what's going on and what's behind some of this stuff. Very much appreciate your time today, Peter. A pleasure to have you on the program, and I look forward to an opportunity to speak to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Sterling. Have a great day. You too, sir. Peter Menzies, former vice chair of the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, joining us from Regina this morning. By way of introducing our next guest, let me just throw this at you. In 2019, Burger King Sweden released a plant-based burger called the Rebel Whopper. And the reaction was, well, underwhelming. So the company challenged its customers to taste the difference. Burger King Sweden created a menu item where customers would have a 50-50 chance of getting either a meat burger or a plant-based one. To find out, they had to scan the burger box on Burger King's app. The results? 44% guessed wrong. Customers couldn't tell the difference. This is the beginning of an article at theconversation.com written by our next guest. The article is entitled, How Scientists Make Plant-Based Foods Taste and Look More Like Meat. We are at the Center for Culinary Excellence at uh, Edmonton's Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, better known to Albertans as Nate, and we're joined on the line by researcher Mariana Lamas. Mariana, thanks for joining us today, and good morning. Hi, Sterling. Thank you for having me, and good morning to you as well. Are you a mother, Mariana? Yes, I am. I have uh, almost a 20-month-old daughter. Well, happy Mother's Day to you, and thank you so much for giving a little bit of your Mother's Day to us to talk about this wonderful article you wrote about the the science behind plant-based foods uh, tasting and looking more like meat. And you will grant me at least one thing, Mariana. This is all pretty new. And, and, And the whole, because it wasn't too long ago when stores used to sell something called veggie burgers this is before any of the plant-based if they would they were just labeled veggie burgers and they tasted like cardboard they were awful so how did we get from cardboardy awful burgers to burgers that are so close uh, burger aficionados many of them can't tell the difference well yeah before the the veggie burgers uh they were just trying to replace meat Yes. Right. So now what we are seeing, um, especially I think uh, the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger, they changed the game because they elevated the expectations of what a, like, a veggie burger should be. Because mm-hmm. they are not only uh, replacing uh, meat, but they now they are mimicking it. So they are trying to make it as close as, to meat as possible. And the reasons they do that, like, they, have, they say it's for the environment and animal uh, welfare. So that's what, that's what we are seeing now. And they started this change. And we see all these other companies and also like big food companies following because they all want a piece of the market. Because if sure. you look at the projections, it's like, it's crazy. If I'm not mistaken, uh, they say that the plant-based market uh, should reach like $38 billion uh, by 2025. 
that's not very oh, far down the road. Uh, and this, this, this whole plant-based technology has been embraced by an entire generation, hasn't it, Mariana? And that's why it's taking off like a rocket, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, what we are also seeing now, like I always say this, that um, your product is as good as the ingredients that are available. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, we are only able to do this now because of the technology that we have, because of the processing techniques that we have available and because of the ingredients that we have available. Ah. You know, because if you look uh, back then, uh, when you were saying about uh, the veggie burgers, right, they were terrible and they, they were, were mostly, mostly uh, made from soy mm-hmm. because that is all that we knew about and that's the ingredient that we use. So that's why soy is still being used today. It's actually like the most used plant protein. It's because we know so much and uh, we have been able to uh, improve uh, the soy process, like uh, technique. So what we're going to be seeing is that uh, other plant proteins, uh, as time goes and research goes, then we're going to see other plant proteins getting to the same level as soy, and they're going to be used more. Well, you know, Mariana, what, the, the just to give, uh, and we know this because we go to supermarkets and we shop and we see these products now available, yeah. and, and you're right, the evolution from the very tasteless veggie burger, uh, what would that be? Maybe, maybe 10 years ago tops. So now we've got products mm-hmm. in, in the supermarkets that it's not just your burger uh, option uh, with ground meat uh, or, or it's equivalent, but there are sausages. There's all sorts of different types of, of uh, meats. Uh, there are seafood replications now. Uh, so the, the industry is, uh, it has become very sophisticated very quickly mm-hmm. yes it has uh so you see like so many different projects uh, products as you as you mentioned um uh and um there's even eggs i don't know if you tried but now there are eggs also available which is i haven't tried impressive. those have you yeah <laughs> uh yes i have and um it's it's really impressive so uh it's it's good i mean um it all depends on what you're looking for. So if you mm-hmm. have an egg allergy or if you if you are vegan and you don't eat animal any animal products, then I think it's a good replacement. Right. But um if you can eat eggs and you like eating eggs, then maybe you should stick to eggs. <laughs> you're very kind Marianne, <laughs> and it's because you work with so many different types of food you've learned to be quite diplomatic about it all tell us something yeah. about what you in, in the article yeah. and this is this is getting into the nuts and bolts of how scientists take plant products and replicate meat uh, and, and other products like seafood and so on you talk about something called the is it maillard or mallard reaction what is that uh, Maillard reaction. So that's a that's a favorite. So the uh, Maillard reaction is a chemical reaction, okay. and uh, it browns the meat, and it creates uh, a lot of the flavor compounds that uh, make uh, the meat delicious. So it's a chemical reaction, like the su- the heat with the sugars and the amino acids. They mm-hmm. combine and then create aromatic and flavor compounds. So, so this is in uh, actual, in this is reaction, in real meat too, right? Okay. Yes. 
yeah. So um, what happened is they create thousands of these compounds, and this reaction is quite complex. Like scientists, uh, they are they still don't understand it entirely. So uh, we don't know all the compounds because there are thousands. So what these companies are doing now? So you have this Maillard reaction that's responsible for part of the flavor and and the smell. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of doing like a reverse engineering nature in a way (laughs) to come up with their uh, plant-based versions. So they are studying these reactions to see what happens and to try to pinpoint exactly what gives meat its taste. Ah, well, they're getting better at it because, I mean, the, the progress that's being made uh, is quite remarkable. So what what is, uh, uh, I, I suppose, uh, you can't give away all the secrets at once, but is there, uh, why are they getting better? Why are they getting closer all the time? What What's the secret ingredient that they're learning how to to work better with as time goes on? I don't think it's just one secret ingredient. Okay. Uh, I think it's a combination of factors. I think they have been doing this for almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. So the, the longer you have been working, so the more uh, comfortable and more information you have about it. Uh, they also are investing, massively investing in R&D. So like the research and development team. So mm-hmm. they have people like it's very multidisciplinary. Um, they have all and very specific. And uh, one also the things is that I feel like these companies uh, realize, and I talk from a chef's perspective because uh, we we are chefs at the center and meet, sure. and um, they are realizing that it's important to have a chef in your research uh, um, team because at the end of the day, if it doesn't taste good, people are not going to buy it. You bet. Joined on the line from Edmonton by Mariana Lamas, who is a researcher at the Center for Cultural Culinary Innovation at NATE, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. Uh, Mariana wrote a piece recently uh, in, at theconversation.com entitled How Scientists Make Plant-Based Foods Taste and Look More Like Meat. And uh, Mariana, we've established they are getting much, much better at it, although they continue to be baffled by something you've identified as the Maillard reaction. This is what happens when real meat cooks and how it changes in its texture, in its chemical composition, creating smells and flavors that, of course, are distinct to meat. And that's the challenge for scientists, to find out the source of those smells and those flavors and replicate them using plant-based materials. And this is all done in the laboratory, and they're getting better at it all the time. So as they, uh, let's talk a little bit about why. For example, color, uh, the replication of the color of meat. Uh, Beets, we learned pretty quickly in the game, were a big part of that. Are, are there more contributing uh, vegetables and uh, other plant-based uh, sources other than beets for color? Um, yes. Uh, they have also been using a pomegranate. And, um, and uh, Impossible Burger has been used hemi, uh, which has been very uh, controversial because it is genetically modified. 
Ah. So they have been facing a lot of criticism because of that. Ah, okay. So then in, in addition to uh, the color, uh, obviously texture is a consideration. So again, uh, as you, you're the scientist, you're the researcher here, as, as, as they work in these laboratories in these large food companies, and, and they, they go for things like texture. What, and you talk about soy already, Mariana. Is that still the prime ingredient in most um, meat imitation products? Or have they moved beyond soy to other uh, sources of protein? So it is still the most used one, but the industry is moving beyond soy. And um, the pea protein, uh, which was made um, uh, uh, popular by the Impossible Burger, uh, the Beyond Burger, uh, it is the fastest growing uh, plant-based protein right now. Pea protein from peas? Pea protein, yes. Interesting. Okay. And as far... uh, Sorry, it's made from uh, split yellow peas. Oh, okay. And uh, so that so then, uh, where's the flavor aspect come from? Uh, I can understand texture and color. That seems, relatively speaking, I, and I'm being simplistic, but it seems easier to accomplish, Mariana, than flavor. So what's the what's the the magic to finding the flavor? I think that's that's a very hard question. Um, I feel like the flavor it's a it's a combination of all the ingredients that you have and also your processing technique because uh, in you, you can lose some of the flavor mm-hmm. while you are producing your meat. So um, what these companies are working, um, a lot of them, they have preparatory uh, ingredients. So they have ingredients made just for them. For them, right, right. So this way, exactly. So this way they are able uh, to get a better product because the ingredients are made accordingly to what they need. Ah, okay. So in, in the labs, we're seeing, you mentioned in your article, 3D printers and cultured meat. This is all laboratory stuff that's going on right now. So as part of the future of, of this industry, is, is that where it's going to stay? Is it all of this is going to come out of laboratories, isn't it? Yes. So uh, 3D printing uh, is a few years away. Uh, there are a few products on the market right now in Europe. And also there are, I think in the U.S., uh, some uh, 3D printed steaks are being tested out in restaurants. Uh, so we are going to be seeing it. Right now it's still too expensive and it's very hard to scale up. But I think in a few years, uh, yes we are going to be seeing a lot of 3D printing uh, products. Mm-hmm. And with the culture meat, that's a whole different story because uh, culture meat is not plant-based, right? Because it's made from um, animal uh, muscle cells. Okay. But And then it brings us to a whole different uh, set of questions and there's a lot of things, there are a lot of restrictions about regulations. Right, and there is also consumers' acceptance because mm. a lot of people say, "Oh, I won't need it." Mm-hmm. It's weird, right? You don't know what it is, so it's, well, oh, that's it's right. A la- it's a meat made in a lab. <laughs> that's right. 
But Mariana, this is this has been going now for, on now for ten years. I'm not eating that. That's fake stuff. I'm not going to go anywhere. And of course, we've been saying that now and nibbling away and becoming converts in large numbers for ten years. And as an, a final question to you, uh, uh, do you see this this trend continuing? More and more of us consumers moving away from meat into plant based alternatives. Yes, I think that's that's what the future is going to look like. Well, as the future unfolds, yes. Uh, More plant-based and less meat. Okay. Well, Mariana, thanks for this this morning. Happy Mother's Day to you. We appreciate your taking time away from your little girl to spend uh, with us here in Vancouver. We hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, we'll have an opportunity to talk more about this fascinating science going forward. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. Mariana Lamas joining us from Edmonton and the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, where she is a researcher at the Center for Culinary Innovation. There you go. Plant-based stuff. Our next guest is a very, very well-known Canadian, perhaps not to us uh, uh, here in the citizenry, but behind the scenes, this fellow is a very well-known actor. He is a former director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. He is a former minister of deputy minister of national defense. He is a former national security advisor to the prime minister. He is Richard Fadden, joining us this morning from Ottawa. Mr. Fadden, Dick, good morning and welcome, sir. Good to be with you. It's great to have you with us. And my gosh, Dick, I've got such a long list of, of uh, stories and items that I want to uh, take on with you, uh, not the least of which is that uh, cyber attack by foreign actors on the United States pipeline infrastructure. But, but, Dick, we have to begin with the China story and this whole business. Uh, and here's a quote from the Globe and Mail. Ottawa says it only learned in February that Canada's visa application center in Beijing is managed by Chinese police the same month the Globe and Mail reported the arrangement. So here we have one story of the Canadian embassy, the visa center in Beijing. Anyone who goes into the Canadian visa center in Beijing to do any sort of business, let alone apply for a visa, is automatically uh, identified by the Communist Party and the Chinese police. The government, uh, did did the government have a choice, Dick, in, uh, in, in accepting this technology in the first place? Well, I think the government always has a choice about how it's going to manage visa applications abroad. For a variety of good management reasons, it decided some years ago that it's going to use these visa application centers and basically outsource them to the private sector. If they're doing this in Scotland or France or Germany, I don't think there's an issue. Right. Uh, But in countries like China, where I think we need to be a little more suspicious, they could have picked a different model. They didn't do that, and they decided to outsource it to a company. Uh, If they did that in that fashion, it seems to me that given that it's China, they should have done a little bit more due diligence in checking Mm -hmm. out who does what to whom. So assuming they're telling the truth and they hadn't heard about it, it seems to me the real problem is not that, but rather that when they set set up the the deal, if I can put it that way, Mm -hmm. they didn't do enough checking in the background to find out with whom they're dealing. 
Well, and the other part of that goes back even further, though, because was there not also an arrangement by the government of Canada with a Chinese tech company to provide security for Canadian embassies and missions abroad? So again, anyone going into a Canadian uh, consulate or embassy anywhere in the world would have to pass through the security scanning system provided by China and therefore make that information also available to China. Yeah, I think there's some concern about that, too. But to be clear, this was to get into the embassy. The secure right. part of the embassy is beyond that. But I continue to think, as I think do a lot of other people, that when you're dealing with China, you should make the assumption that they're out to acquire as much information as they can. Whether they do or not is another issue. But why we would use Chinese material by a Chinese company which have to respond to Ministry of State Security direction is beyond me. There are all sorts of security companies around the world who could have done this. Exactly. So why, then, do you think we opted for the Chinese model? To be honest with you, I don't know. But knowing how the system works, they probably decided that they were getting a good deal. And on the face of things, it was the thing to do. The other thing that worries me a little bit is that, you know, the department in Ottawa that deals with procurement, it has a Mm -hmm. really wide range of responsibilities. And I'm not sure that it would have received from uh, the Global Affairs Department or from CSIS the kind of warnings that would have enabled them to raise red flags when this sort of thing came up. Right. So I just don't know that, but it seems to me that's part of the problem. Having said that, There is the problem, and then there's how you fix it. And that's where I really am worried that, you know, the government has acknowledged this is the case, and they're sort of downplaying the risk, uh, and they're not taking out the equipment. That, I think, is really worrisome. Yeah. Now, Dick, you, as the former director of CSIS, would be able to answer this in a heartbeat. Would CSIS, prior to the government um, uh, accepting or uh, going into the arrangement for these security matters, would CSIS have provided some background information, perhaps suggesting this might not be the best company to do business with? I don't know what they did in this particular case, but generally speaking, uh, CSIS would not have. Now, I think, oh, okay. given the, I, get, I think that given the environment today, though, and, you know, China has become much, much more of a worry for not just Canada, for countries in the West over the last few years. So if they haven't been doing it, and I don't think they would have been doing it when I was director, I think it's the sort of thing what you need to establish a clear line of communications between the procurement people, between global affairs, because we're talking about outside of Canada and CETA. Mm-hmm. I think it's better than it used to be. But you, you adjust what you do depending upon the level of threat that you perceive. And I think it's almost universally accepted today. China is a greater threat than it used to be even a few years ago. It sounds in some cases, in, in instances like this too, Mr. Fadden, and we hear this all the time, and it's, it's a terrible old cliche, but I'm afraid it's applicable in this case. In some instances, and you talk about the difference between procurement and global affairs, two separate ministries mm-hmm. under, uh, in the federal cabinet, and it's entirely possible that the right hand may not have a clue what the left hand was doing. I think it is within the realm of the possible. Having said that, having worked in this area for most of my career, it's easier said than done. I mean, uh, despite what many people think, people are very busy. They have a whole raft of activities. But I think that's that's only a reason. It's not an excuse. We Mm -hmm. need, uh, it's rather the reverse. 
Uh, and I think we need to identify uh, in this area of national security the few areas, the half dozen issues that are of real concern to the country, and then maximize, absolutely maximize coordination between departments and agencies. Um, and I think we are doing better. Uh, I think we're doing better because our close allies are doing better as well. But when you work for an organization that has something like 200,000 people, coordination is not easy. That's not mm-hmm. an excuse. We need to work at it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, uh, with the uh, the, the uh, time that you've spent uh, not only as a director of CSIS, but you were also the national security advisor to the prime minister, perhaps you would have some understanding of why the prime minister seems to resist uh, the, the, the public trends. Let me ask the question in a different way. Survey after survey after poll, and the liberals are poll crazy, uh, shows that up to 80% of the Canadian population is of the opinion that our government is completely out of step with us when it comes to China. More of the population of Canada is aware of the danger that China poses to us on a daily and particularly ongoing basis than the government seems prepared to acknowledge. And 80% is a pretty staggering number, Dick, for a population to feel that they're uh, completely out of step or the prime minister is completely out of step with them. Why is Mr. Trudeau so reluctant to take on China? I think that's the $54,000 question. I mean, to give Mr. Trudeau the credit, he has slowly been shifting, is what he said. But I think um, one of the issues here is that the PM in his mind is trying to balance out what we've been talking about, the threat from China. But also, on the other hand, you have, I would say, a fair number of large corporations in Canada who really want to do business with China, who see mm-hmm. real possibilities you know, for profit. Uh, there are other organizations in Canada who see real possibilities for Chinese tourism, for Chinese investment. And you sort of balance this out, I think, the balance should be tipping more towards national security concerns. But if I had to guess, I would say that in this stew that the prime minister has to sort out, uh, honestly, his government is a little bit behind. On the other mm-hmm. hand, there is a responsibility for governments to sort of take deep breaths and not necessarily go with every trend in the public opinion. Of course. But I'm with you on this. I think that Canadian opinion on, on China has shifted over the years fairly slowly, but as you point out, quite substantively. And I think overall we're a little bit behind uh, our close allies, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. And I think it behooves us to catch up. Now, that doesn't mean we have to quote-unquote declare war on China, and I mean that facetiously. But it does mean, I think, we have to be more upfront. Uh, in saying that the, some of these activities are unacceptable. Having said this, there are a whole raft of areas where we can, we, can, we can collaborate with China, and I think that needs a comprehensive strategy uh, to deal with China, and I don't think we have one. Is it, is it almost, I need to take a break here, Dick, but before we do, is it almost like adopting a sort of a Cold War mentality all over again? There is an urgent need for peaceful coexistence, no question about it. However... They are still the enemy. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go as far as you in calling them an enemy, but they are certainly clearly our adversary. The difference between the Cold War and now, though, is that when we were dealing with the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, we had almost no economic relations with them. China today, massive player financially in a trade sense, and cutting them off as much, I think, as we cut off the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, probably not doable. 
But that means we have a problem. We need to work our way through and find a solution. We have the pleasure of the company of Mr. Richard Fadden, the former director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. We're talking about China, cyber attacks, and uh, he's also a former deputy minister of national defense. And we'll get to that file in just a few moments. But Dick, in, in the course of doing a little homework for your appearance today, I discovered another CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies at CSIS.org. Mm-hmm. And, and what they do is they have a list of significant cyber incidents and my gosh just in the year 2021 already there's a full page of it so i I wanted to by way of getting to this a pipeline attack that's going on this weekend right now as we speak it's colonial pipeline in the states they've shut down the entire network about half of the east coast of the united states fuel supply flows through this pipeline infrastructure it has been attacked and they say by a very sophisticated group of cyber criminals, and it's all about ransomware as opposed to perhaps an attack by a foreign actor like China or Russia. So what do you make of this attack this weekend? Well, I think it's a good indication that one of the greatest threats we face today are cyber attacks. I mean, I think we really do still have to worry about terrorism, uh, but I think our societies haven't quite yet come to grips with the seriousness of cyber attacks. And you have states, as you've just implied. There are some very, very sophisticated ones there and some less sophisticated Mm -hmm. ones. But criminal groups uh, increasingly are taking advantage of their capacity to uh, attack our critical infrastructure. This happens to be a pipeline. It could be a bank. It could be a telecommunications company. It could be any number of things. And I think slowly we're beginning to register that we have a problem uh, on cyber defense. Mm-hmm. And like most things in the modern world, you know, it has to, uh, this kind of concern and and protective measures have to permeate uh, the private sector and governments because everything is linked with everything else. So I worry a little bit about the weakest link in the chain. This happens to be ransomware, I think, about yes. the pipeline, Sounds but it like can it, be yeah. linked to anything else, and that's the real worry. So the question is going to be, did this pipeline company take reasonable precautions to protect itself or not? Did the access to this company come from another company or from a source overseas or in in the United States? All of these questions have to be answered. But the bottom line, which I think your your question implies, is we have a problem with cyber attacks, both Mm -hmm. government, the private sector, and civil society. Uh, And, you know... Uh, your your show could be hacked. It's not a hard, di- particularly difficult thing to do, and it's something that we all need to worry about more than we are now, I think. Well, and again, as a, as a former security guy, uh, you would have uh, been required and, in fact, paid to be on this file, to be aware of cyber attacks, to mm-hmm. be aware of the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities of particularly open Western societies, Dick, like ours. We are we're deliberately vulnerable. We pride ourselves on our openness. But at the same time, we leave ourselves exposed uh, uh, constantly to this sort of attack. So how do we reconcile? our openness and our desire to stay that way with our absolute need to protect ourselves? I think that's a really, really good question, and I don't think there's a silver bullet in an answer to that question. But I think part of it is going to acknowledge that there are some things we're not going to be able to protect, and we're going to have to define more carefully what we do need to protect. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the difficulties today is that there's a lot of gray here. Um, 
You know, I think, for example, the federal government, where I worked, have done a great deal over the course of the last decade in in terms of protecting its assets. It has begun to have conversations with the provinces about the need to do that. And I know that my old colleagues, both in CSIS and in CSE, the Communication Security Establishment, are talking more and more with the private sector. Uh, But I think we have to decide initially, you know, company X, What's really important for that company, and they have to take measures to ensure that it's protected, can it protect equally every single bit of communication that it's engaged in? I suspect it can, but the cost of doing that is prohibitive. So I think we need to have a little conversation about that, but I come back to my weakest link in the chain argument. Everybody has to do something, Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think we're there yet. Okay. Dick, I need to take a a change of course here for a a couple of minutes and call upon your expertise as a former uh, Deputy Minister of National Defense. The Defense Department uh, appears to be in shambles. The Prime Minister's uh, principal advisor, Katie Telford, dodging questions left, right, and center on TV the other day, claiming to have no uh, knowledge, and the Prime Minister had absolutely no knowledge of all of these, uh, well, shall we say, indiscretions at the senior executive level that have filtered down. Uh, We had uh, a a former uh, uh, military officer uh, on our show a couple of weeks ago talking about her personal experiences of sexual harassment and so on. Now we're going to have another commission from yet another Supreme Court retired justice to accomplish exactly what the last one did, which is nothing other than to kick the can down the road for another year or two. Why? Why can't we just cut to the chase and, 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 and get to what's wrong? Well, let me start by saying that uh, I'm a bit embarrassed that I didn't do more when I was there. I wasn't aware that the problem was serious as it was, and perhaps I should have been. I would backtrack a little bit and say that this just isn't a problem in defense. It's It's a problem in national governance, because... The central agencies in Ottawa, uh, the, pol- the politicians, the prime ministers have a responsibility for making sure that government departments are run properly. Mm-hmm. That's particularly hard to do when you have an institution like the military, which is a closed personnel system run on a command and control basis. You know, they're right. not the only one in the country. But, but getting into that and knowing what they're doing is very difficult. I once wrote an op-ed about something a similar problem in police forces. The more closed they are, the harder it is to deal with them. True. But I'm but I'm with you. I think having another uh, commission by as distinguished uh, a judge as Madame Arbour is is to some degree pushing the problem off to a to a time when it might not be as difficult to deal with. Madame, her predecessor, Madame Deschamps, made a number of very good recommendations. I think they should have been implemented across the board. They mm. were not. Right. Uh, part of the solution is, and I think the example you gave of somebody talking about the issue on your show a few weeks ago, is encouraging. Because the more people talk about this, I think the more uh, we're going to come to grips with the issue. I think we need uh, a bunch of people in defense at all levels who uh, are not sort of bound by the problems of the past, who are forward-looking and who are willing to make changes. This, I think, is going to require changes in personnel. Uh, I don't know if the prime minister and the government is prepared to do that, uh, I think. But I I think if we leave the same people in place, it's like leaving Mr. Abbas and Mr. Netanyahu in place in in the Middle East and expecting them to solve the problem between Israel and the Palestinians. It doesn't work. Sometime you have to change personnel. Right. Uh, And I hope they do that. 
All right. Richard Fadden, I, I'm grateful for your time this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program, especially with the flexibility that you've demonstrated being able to go through this myriad of topics that have, we were going to talk about one thing, Dick, and all of a sudden it turned into four. And I, I, I appreciate your flexibility very much. Thanks for this. I look forward to an opportunity to speak to you again, sir. I do too. Good talking to you. Cheers. Richard Richard Fadden, former director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, joining us this morning from Ottawa. It's time to check in with Rob Williams, our friend, the sports editor at the Daily Hive, uh, with a little uh, hockey fix for a Sunday morning. Talk a little uh, local hockey first and then Fraser Valley hockey. Rob, good morning. Hey, Sterling, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the Canucks and the fact that uh, after all of these years, remember when they used to get their team from Freddie Beach? That's what we used to call Fredericton. Uh, then it got a lot closer. It got to uh, Manitoba. We had the Moose. And then for some reason, we went backwards and ended up with our farm team in Utica, New York. So finally, after how many decades, the Canucks are going to have their farm team down the road within an hour's drive of Rogers Arena. That's a pretty cool development, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's very exciting for for hockey fans. I, I think it's um, it's something that, especially in recent years, um, the focus on on prospects, and I think you know, with social media and with all the video we get now, um, you know, Canucks fans are consuming uh, consuming highlights of the prospects, and also they just know much more about them. There's so much more focus than there ever has been before. True. And now to have them right in their backyard, I, I think it's going to be very exciting for, for people. And, you know, seeing some, some players that, uh, you know, the players that, that people around here already know, I think, I think we're going to see probably a, a player like Cole Lind is probably going to play mm -hmm. on the team next year. Um, Jet Wu is another player that'll for sure be on the team. Uh, Michael DiPietro is, a, you know, a, the goalie. Uh, yeah. A, yeah. A goal, uh, the, you know, the hero for Canada, the world juniors joined yes. in Vancouver, seeing all those players, I think it's going to be uh, extremely exciting for, you know, for fans in Abbotsford and the surrounding areas for sure. Well, I can remember getting a call from my youngest son a couple of years ago, Rob. This is Jermaine. Ultimately, he, he said, you, you got to come down to Nat Bailey stadium with me tonight. Kevin Biggio is playing. He's Craig Biggio's kid. He's going to be a star on the Blue Jays. We just got to go see this kid. So off we went, the four of us, Carol and I and our son and his pal, and we watched Kevin Biggio play baseball at Nat Bailey Stadium. He was fantastic. And there were a couple of other, uh, like Guerrero Jr. and others, who have gone through Nat Bailey Stadium and gone on to be big deal stars. That's what Abbotsford offers to Vancouver hockey fans. A chance to go see the stars of tomorrow, Rob, at a ticket price that won't scare you too much <laughs> you know what? it's going to be even better than that because this is they're one step away i think um and i i don't get me wrong i love going to vancouver canadians game um but those players are you know about three steps away from the major league so you end up seeing i, I mean i remember seeing biggio too and i think we remember that name because of of uh you know who his father was sure yeah but but often with the Canadians, you, you see players, you kind of forget about them, and then they pop up at, in the majors like three years later. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, this is like you could be watching the guy one minute, he'll be on the – I mean, you'll have guys yo-yoing back and forth uh, between the Canucks and Abbotsford. So I, I think it's, it's, it's very exciting. And, you know, of course, this isn't the first time that Abbotsford has had an AHL team. They had, a, they had the um, Abbotsford Heat from 2009 to 2014. 
I'm not sure about you, but I never went to a game <laughs> with with that team. Um, no, I neither I did I, Rob. That, and I'm and I'm not alone because uh, I know we're not alone because <laughs> because the um, attendance was a huge problem with that team. But I think that the biggest thing that that uh, I think the Canucks are banking on, I think a lot of people are banking on, and certainly I believe it, is that that team was always doomed by being a farm team of the Calgary Flames. People That's did right. not care about you know people didn't want to support a um, a Calgary Flames um, affiliate, and I think being a Canucks affiliate is going to be so much more different. Of course, they can also take advantage of uh, having the you know marketing and sales engine of the Vancouver Canucks. I'm sure there'll be lots of crossover um, opportunities there. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a, a great idea, and I, I think uh, I think fans are going to be really excited about it for sure. Oh, I do too. It's no question about it. Of course, in between, and of course, in, in the city of Abbotsford, you know, once bitten, twice shy, they didn't just rush off and sign on to the first thing the Canucks floated past them. After that, taking, I think, a total of about 12 million bucks in losses over that disastrous arrangement with the hated Calgary Flames, Rob, uh, the city of Abbotsford has taken its time to negotiate this uh, arrangement with Vancouver because they, they uh, obviously, they recognize the value in having the home team a ahl franchise not one of the enemy teams obviously there's a huge advantage in that but they also have carved out uh, an arrangement that they're everybody's going to be happy with including the city of abbotsford yeah i, I mean I, I i really think so i i think this is yeah like I mean, like you said the the flames kind of uh it, it feels like they kind of came into town and swindled them and then left with their money yeah. right like uh, you know because they were promised essentially breaking even and, and, and the team didn't. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I just think it's, it, I just think it's going to work this time. Um, I, I think there's, there's just, there's too many things in their, in their advantage. I, I think that a team um, that's affiliated with the Canucks is, is going to pull fans from, from much further than, than the average for he ever would have this as well. Sure. I, I think that, that, Local, you know, people in Abbotsford are obviously going to support it, but I think you're going to see a lot of people driving in from Chilliwack. I think you're going to see a lot of people even driving the other way, which is, I mean, usually when you have a, 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 a and this has been my criticism of the Vancouver Giants is when they when they move to Langley, that you'll get people coming from Langley into East Vancouver, but you won't get people from East Vancouver going to Langley the other way, um, not as much certainly. And I think that you might not get people driving from Vancouver to Abbotsford in, in huge numbers, but I think you're going to find people making the drive from Coquitlam, making the drive from uh, Pitt Meadows and Surrey. So sure. um, I think in that respect, it's, it's going to be a hit uh, with fans. And, and I'm also, and I think a lot of people are interested now, what, what's the team going to be named? Because they've, yeah. you know, they're, they're not going to be called the, the Abbotsford Comets. So that's for sure. What's the what's the name going to be? So there's and there's no shortage of uh, suggestions right now. Yeah, it could be the Canucks. It could be the Aviators. Some people are talking about the Millionaires and the Arrows and the Astros and the Aces, and the list goes on and on. And that's the fun part about all of this. Rob, I'm almost out of time, and I'm always grateful for yours on a Sunday morning. How about a a final word? There will be more, but we're almost at the end of the regular season schedule for the NHL. How about a final word on the Canucks' effort? post COVID taking them to the end of the schedule. Yeah. I mean, it's really been a, a, an awful year in all, always. I mean, of course the, the COVID outbreak has 
was kind of the, the final uh, gut punch, I think, for the Canucks. Um, you know, coming back from that, they kind of never had a chance, I don't think, to to make a make a push, given how difficult the schedule is, and given how um, you know just what the what the virus did to take take it out of the Canucks. So, mm-hmm. um, but before that, they were they were a bit of a disaster on the ice to begin with. I think that um, this was the year that uh, the salary cap problems really caught up to Jim Benning, and I think that the team is paying for it right now they they weren't able to improve and in fact they they got worse in the offseason um which is disappointing because they had such a a, a nice season the year before and a, sure did a nice yeah. little run in the playoffs so yep. uh yeah i i think that uh, it, it's been a, a disappointing season but hey it, it, at least we had hockey to watch because we went a few months without anything to watch at all didn't we always got to find that silver lining williams you're really good at that part rob (laughs) thanks very much for this it's always a treat to have you join us we appreciate it very much my pleasure thanks there's rob williams the sports editor of the daily hive spacex OneWeb, amazon telesat a handful of the companies that plan to send up constellations of mini satellites in the coming years to provide broadband access to un served areas and there are certainly those areas here in Canada especially the rural or, or northern areas that could benefit from better internet not the least the indigenous people who live in those areas but a new report by Canadian scientists warns that we need to make sure to continue to preserve our skies for scientific and cultural reasons the submission to the government of Canada and the Canadian Space Agency was led by our next guest Dr. Aylern Bowley the Canada chair in planetary astronomy at uh, UBC. Dr. Boley, Aaron, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, Aaron. I appreciate your time very much. And just before we dive into this constellation business, interesting timing with Musk on TV last night, uh, I wanted to ask you what you know this morning about that Chinese rocket that apparently hasn't harmed any humans and landed somewhere in the Indian Ocean off the Maldives. What can you tell us, Aaron? Well, that's right. So uh, it was uh, launched and as part of an ongoing effort now by uh, the Chinese to uh, put in place their own space station. Uh, and that is a new rocket special built for that purpose. Mm. And it doesn't uh, re-enter in a controlled way. And it's 20 tons or so. And this is one of the largest masses that we've seen since about the 1990s, that have come in uncontrolled. And that is uh, a, an issue about responsible uh, space uh, behavior. So sure. we have actors who are launching these materials up in space, and it's really on to them to make sure that when they dispose of these rockets, they do so over unpopulated areas. And what happened here is that the rocket was on an orbit in which it didn't immediately go back into the atmosphere in a very uh, calculated, prescribed way. And so mm-hmm. over time, atmospheric drag just brought that down. And it luckily fell into an ocean, right. but uh, they had no control over where it was ultimately going to fall. And is there, is there a convention, Dr. Boley, that suggests that if you're going to send up a rocket to space, you need to have a, a technology on board that vehicle to allow it to return safely to Earth? Is there not some kind of international agreement to that effect? There is not an international agreement to that specific effect. What we have is a liability convention. And 
that determines who's responsible if something goes wrong and under what conditions. Mm-hmm. So if something's in orbit and it deorbits, falls, and it uh, hits somebody or something uh, on the surface or hits aircraft operating, then the state from which that was, whatever that was launched, um, is absolutely responsible. So it doesn't ah. matter whether it's their fault. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting to think about it because a, a private company launching from a particular state, if something goes wrong due to that company's actions, then it's the state that's responsible internationally. Right. Interesting so stuff. You so have, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Uh, so if you are an actor in a particular state uh, and something happens to you, you have to try to compel your state to take action against another state. So it's not a straightforward way of actually executing liability uh, as we might typically think about it. It seems to be rather the most difficult way to accomplish uh, something. If one was to to approach it from a legal standpoint, I can't think of a a stickier wicket to try to get through. But Aaron, I want to move on because this is a report that you've just uh, released uh, recently for the government of Canada and the Canadian Space Agency. It's about space junk. And again, interesting timing with Mr. Space Junk himself, Elon Musk, being on the tube last night. Uh, The report talks about volume, just sheer volumes of satellites. And we're not talking about satellites necessarily the size of that Chinese thing that you were just describing. Aaron, we're talking about things the size of a microwave or a toaster, but thousands and thousands of them. Talk to us a little about these constellations that you refer to. Yeah, some of them are uh, more like a uh, dining room table in size. Uh, These are going to be 10,000, tens of thousands of satellites that are being placed into orbit very specific orbits uh, that will provide uh, global internet coverage, communications, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, To put it into perspective, uh, uh, around uh, 2018, we had somewhere around 3,000 active and defunct satellites in low Earth orbit. So just about 3,000. And now a single constellation like Starlink is seeking to put 12,000 or so it's going to be the equivalent amount of mass in low Earth orbit as what we uh, currently have from all the discarded rocket bodies, one of which we were just talking about. Uh, And what this means is that now you have uh, a large um, area which things can be hit. Uh, We're talking about meteoroids, uh, debris from past actions that happened in space, uh, accidents like fragmentations and purposeful fragmentations like anti-satellite tests for militaries uh, demonstrating counter space sure, activities. Yes. And so what can happen is those, materi- those debris pieces can slam into these satellites and create uh, additional fragmentations that then affect pretty much everyone uh, in those type of orbits. You also have now, with so many satellites in very specific orbits, you're effectively denying other people from using those orbits just because of congestion and traffic management concerns. 
Yeah, and, Dr. Bowley, I, I'm curious though, is, is it not possible to, uh, as we do with aircraft, and I know I'm being simplistic here, Aaron, but we, we, we stack aircraft uh, in, in terms of, of, of priority and landing and taking off and all of that sort of thing. Can we not establish a convention which says if you're going to create a constellation of communication satellites, they have to operate at orbit X, which is above the low level stuff where the most junk is, or is that simply too expensive? Well, it's not necessarily the, the cost at the moment. I mean, this certainly is expensive to put these constellations up. Sure. Uh, but the, the issue is ultimately the way uh, space is regulated. And so uh, there, the, the, the use of space is ultimately governed by national regulators. And so there isn't a clear international body who would be able to say, okay, you should use these particular orbits. Sure. Um, so... For example, with uh, Starlink, it's the Federal Communications Commission that has been approving uh, these the very specific orbits that Starlink's going into. Now, if everything works correctly, <laughs> then and with like a- automated collision avoidance and so forth that Starlink is using, uh, they will be able to avoid collisions with each other. The issue is there's no standard, so one company that has uh, a particular type of collision avoidance, or maybe they don't have automated collision avoidance, uh, is, is trying to use that space as well, you now have a conflict. You don't know, for example, which way to turn, right. like you might uh, with aircraft. Uh, so that's one of the large complications. And the other one is that you can avoid things that you know are there, things that you don't know are there, you can't avoid. And Indeed. so... Uh, that's going to be one of the largest issues. A lot of this untracked debris, which we know is there, but it's too small to reliably track. Indeed. Dr. Bowley, final question to you, Aaron, and we're grateful for your time this morning. Uh, You seem to indicate many times, even in this short conversation, the need for some kind of international convention. I don't know about an agency that's uh, perhaps too far off, but some kind of accord that countries can sign on to and protect low Earth orbit areas and 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 maybe uh, arrange those uh, degrees and levels of, of orbits for satellites, creating a safer environment for all. What sort of appetite do you see internationally for such an agreement? I do think, just based on what we're seeing, that there is uh, a very strong desire to have some type of international understanding of basic space traffic management, something that we do not have, and a, a better understanding uh, or development of viewing space, particularly low Earth orbit, as an environment, an extension of how we typically think of the environment on Earth, because actions that we do in low Earth orbit affect the atmosphere, affect the oceans, affect the surface of Earth. Right. And so having that type of bill, we're really seeing a strong desire to have some type of international understanding. And the most recent Chinese Long March 5B rocket, which just reentered over the ocean where we started the segment, is a perfect example where you're hearing people say, we can't go on doing these type of things because somebody will get hurt. Absolutely. Dr. Aaron Boley, thank you so much for joining us this morning, sir. I look forward to another opportunity to speak to you at length on your report and this whole matter of space congestion. Thanks for this, Aaron. Have a great day, sir. Thank you for having me. Take care. 
There's Dr. Aaron Boley from the uh, Department of Physics and Astronomy at UBC. Joining us from Hamilton this morning. Laura, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And to you. Well, I just want to run this headline by you. Laura. Laura is a professional communicator who has very powerful clients who have messages that we would all recognize immediately from television advertising and all the rest of it. And therefore, as an expert in messaging, Laura, that's why you're with us today to talk about the statement from the government of Canada uh, in the name of uh, the Minister of uh, Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc, who says today they have no plans to request that the National Advisory Committee on immunization or NACI reduce or eliminate their presence on the national stage after mounting criticism they provided unclear advice on the administration of COVID-19 vaccines and that's why you're with us this morning Laura to talk to us about two things there's two parts to unpack to this conversation one the incredible uh, as they kindly put in this news account unclear advice presented to the nation scientists uh which produced enormous confusion did you see that announcement where the the whole notion of vaccine shopping was was brought forward well yeah and the way that it was delivered with a personal anecdote about you know if uh, it was the chair i believe who said you know if my sister took a vaccine and ended up getting the uh, the blood clots could i live with myself you know and she talked about preferred vaccinations that they've always said that the mrna are preferred most canadians haven't always heard that message it hasn't always been clear and no. i can tell you as a communication pro one of the very first things you train someone is you don't get into hypotheticals you do not tell stories or anecdotes because you're way outside of the guardrails on your messaging so that I would I would take it up a notch from what the government characterized the nasty communication as I would say that it was beyond unclear it was dangerous because it probably from what I've certainly seen on social media anyhow has led to more vaccine hesitancy more frustration more confusion and I think most importantly more erosion in the public trust of government and in a crisis the number one thing that you have to have and you have to continue to communicate is trust. Yeah. As soon as people stop trusting you, they start making up their own decisions. And how do you get a community-wide response or action, such as getting vaccinated uh, so that we can open up the economy and get back to life? How do you get that kind of community buy-in if you don't have trust? So the Nazi states statement broke down even further the trust that Canadians have in the vaccine rollout in this country. Yeah, Laura, here's a weird one for you, okay? I think Canadians, on balance, trust Dr. Anthony Fauci more than anybody in this country since the beginning of COVID-19. Tony Fauci has been saying to Americans and the world since day one, when, it, when it's your turn and you get offered a vaccine, you take whatever that vaccine is. It doesn't matter, doesn't care what the brand is or whatever. When it's your turn, take what is offered. That's been the message that I have clearly understood for over a year. Even though the vaccine's only been available for a few months, that's really clear advice. So, and I think most Canadians have bought into Fauci, if for no other reason than the fact that he was so distrusted by his president after, what, eight decades as a leader in immunization and public policy? Nonetheless, Canadians trust that sort of point blank with a New York accent. Here's the deal advice. So why, well, why, why on earth has the government of Canada seen fit to complicate such a simple message? 
Well, you know, there's one can always make theories, and I'll give you some of mine in a moment, but your initial question about Fauci, I, I agree. I think from the beginning of this pandemic, as we have done for many, many things, not just Canadians, but globally, we've looked to the Americans to see what they're going to do with the biggest economy and, and often a world leadership role. And so when we saw Fauci on the world stage about the pandemic, of course, we all wanted to know what he had to say. But then when Trump started to attack him and attack him personally and everything he went through, it became kind of a drama that we were all watching, almost a tragedy. Sure. And so mm-hmm. people really found a connection to Fauci and were kind of rooting for him. But to your point about his simple, straightforward messaging, no matter what any any interviewer asks him, uh, he always responds by reiterating the key steps that are necessary, the masking, the washing of hands, you know, being patient, getting your vaccine as soon as you can. He's been very steady. And that's what you want in crisis communication. You want clear, steady consistency. So what we've seen in Canada, I I mean, I know myself, whenever Fauci weighs in on the Canadian situation, I, I pay much attention to it. But what we've seen in Canada is there have been multiple people speaking on this. And in terms of uh, NACI, NACI, yes, of course, they are, you know, a panel of experts and they have a particular expertise in this matter. But to be speaking on a national program about a national response and, and what the community should do and be out of line with the very same, the very messaging of the prime minister looks bad. It, it shows that the, they're not really coordinating their communication. So I'm disappointed to see that they're going to keep letting Nasty go out and do these kind of comms, unless, of course, there's been some training now and they've learned their lesson and they're not going, they're going to check in with any other people speaking on what Canadians should be doing in this life or death battle before they go out and talk about it. Just because you're an expert doesn't mean you're an ex- doesn't make you an expert communicator. Well, no question about that part. And here's, here's an interesting comment. This will be on question period on CTV later today. The minister responsible, uh, Dominic LeBlanc, who, who talked about they have no plans to, to muzzle the uh, Nassi people. Uh, here's, here's the reason from the, the uh, Trudeau government, and I quote, Unlike Mr. Harper, who thought you should muzzle scientists, we believe scientists should obviously be free to talk about the work that they do. That's part of Canadians' being informed, close quote. So the Harper government, of course, anti-science and anything they did, of course, was terribly wrong. And we're just so right because we're not them. And because we're not them, that makes everything we do right. And in this case, turning untrained scientists with casual opinions that differ from the key message, perhaps not the right decision. Well, I think they're creating a false argument there, right? Of course, we want to hear from scientists. Of course, we want an evidence-based approach. And in fact, right there in BC, you want more data, not less from no your, kidding. Your, uh, from Bonnie, right? So, I mean, we are craving information as we are making life and death decisions every day for 14 months now for our families, for our, around education, around vaccination, around everything. This is what Canadians need. We need steady information that we can trust. So yes, of course, you don't have to be anti-science or muzzle Nazi, but you do have to make sure that they are trained to understand the guardrails around messaging. It's just what professionals do. So mm-hmm. to go on and to talk anecdotally or to give predictions or to tell people what to do is different from talking about the science and talking about what you found or what the research says. So put guardrails around them, their expertise and what they do and do not weigh into and give them some media training. 
You know, so I don't like this false argument that's set up, that if they do anything to make sure that Nazi communicates better in the future, somehow they're being anti-science like Harper. That's ridiculous. And well, it of might course get it is. partisans excited, but it doesn't, it doesn't pass the laugh test. Well, and the other part, I need to take a break here, Laura, but just before we do, I want to go back to a point that you sort of alluded to earlier. The the one really seriously negative consequence of this information, this musing about boutique shopping for the vaccine of your choice and other such uh, side rail stuff has really fed the machine that is anti-vax, anti-max, anti-COVID, anti-bloody everything. This is just, just it's gas on that fire, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, there's a prominent doctor in the U.S. that has been really mapping out the growth of anti-vax and anti-COVID and all of that. And, and he's, you know, he has tied it to actual misinformation campaigns from, sure. from uh, enemies of the United States, right? So it is a very, very dangerous thing. And if people in Canada are choosing not to get vaccinated, they are keeping the country in the, it, unable to open up, unable to achieve an economy, unable to bring people back to their you know, healthier mental health positions. It's a very dangerous thing. And for Nazi to have put it out there that there's preferred, adding fear, having people shop around, possibly delay their vaccinations, it could have some really deleterious effects on our country. It's not just a miscommunication. It's something that they had a pulpit they had a profile they had the bully pulpit and they used it in a way that only contributed to the problem not the solution no question it's just good it just comes off as flat out bloody dangerous doesn't it laura i mean it it, it seemed almost irresponsible when when i heard it and i saw it i thought what on earth are you thinking perhaps they weren't absolutely Absolutely. And if you look at the, the amount of fear that it has generated and people saying, well, did I get the wrong vaccine? Should I have jumped at AstraZeneca? Will I ever get another shot? What have I done? You know, and this makes people rethink the whole thing. The last thing you need to do is add more stress to Canadians. Sure. We're, 18, we're 14 months into this. Let's have our government give us clear, consistent data. And if they're going to tell us what to do, let it be like a Fauci simple, concise, consistent, and not this other going, as you say, off on these side rails that are only causing people to feel more stressed and maybe not take the vaccine. Pleasure to have Laura Babcock with us talking about messaging from governments and government officials during this public health crisis. Laura is the owner of the Power Group Communications uh, Company in Ontario, joining us from Hamilton this morning. Uh, Laura, I I would like you just uh, your comments on messages. We're talking about messaging and quality of messaging and its content. And we talked about Anthony Fauci being basically the go-to guy in America. There are lots of them. But when a typical American wants to know what the heck's going on, uh, what's Fauci got to say? Well, in Canada, the lead messenger is Justin, I'm not a doctor, but pay attention anyway, Trudeau. He has unfettered access to the airwaves as often as he wants to say whatever he wants and has been doing so ad nauseum since the beginning of this thing. What do you make of Mr. Trudeau's messaging over this period? I think in the beginning it was strong because he had a personal experience of COVID in the house when most of us, uh, we still couldn't wrap our heads around it. And we remember those press conferences and those very scary days when he stood out in front of the house 
in the winter and he did the daily and said, you know, we're in this together. We're not going to let anyone fall behind. But I think there was some credit in terms of the programs, even though there was a lot of problems with the programs that the government put out. They seemed to be responding quickly. And then when the vaccine became available, Trudeau got international headlines for securing the most doses per capita. But then, as we know, that kind of all crumbled in the procurement and the contracts and the timing and all kinds of other things happened and the vaccines were slow to come and the provinces were, you know, critical of Trudeau and rightly so. And then we saw really the communication, I think, shift to Dr. Tam became more important in terms of Canadians getting their information. But as we discussed before the break, the having other groups like NACI out there commenting, it's become a bit of a dog's breakfast. And people in Canada are wondering where now to get their information from. Trudeau, whether people like his comms or not, he is pretty good, at least at the social media comms, and not doing the kind of quick response. And so it was him who was doing the cleanup on the Nazi statement, reiterating right. that any vaccine is good, and yes. posting his picture of himself getting the AstraZeneca, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, if, so if he has access to everything and all the vaccines, and he chooses AstraZeneca, that, I think, sent a bit of a calming message to the many Gen Xers who ran to get that shot. So, you know, his his comps haven't been great, but he he can be good in a pinch when he has to. Uh, what I'm more concerned about is the consistency of their communications and why he hasn't set any kind of bold targets like we saw Boris Johnson or Joe Biden do. We have right, two sure. other countries where the prime minister or the president said, you know, within 100 days, this by this date will be opening. Boris Johnson put in a clear plan and it's mm-hmm. working. And I don't think we've seen that kind of leadership from Trudeau on this. Well, it's interesting. And, and of course, on a provincial level, there are these, there's the premier and the provincial officer of health. And in some cases, as in the case here in BC, the premier doesn't take the lead. The minister of health, Mr. Dix does. Uh, Mr. Horgan, the premier shows up occasionally. Uh, in, in Ontario, it's the reverse. Doug Ford, it's the Doug Ford show starring whoever medical uh, people are alongside him. Uh, and here, but I get the impression overall, regardless, and we watch a lot of coverage from Newfoundland to British Columbia every day. Yeah, you, you get the impression that they're reluctant to tell us as much as we would like to know because they don't trust us to understand the facts they it's a condescending we know more than you do and therefore you're not to be trusted with the information we have so we're going to withhold a whole bunch of it and deal it out to you in little doses uh, because that's all you're capable of handling it feels quite condescended too Well, that's part of it, certainly. And as we saw in BC, you know, your government is not giving out the same amount of information on localized rates and things like that that we're seeing in other provinces. It's not giving weekend updates like most provinces. So it is not, despite what your premier, I guess, apparently said that you're as transparent certainly doesn't look that way if you look at the right. entire country. So what is it about? Is it about a lot thinking that people can't be trusted? Sure, that's part of it. There's always, I think, a little bit of uh, elitism when it comes to government and that kind of thing. But I think it's also about politics. You know, it's about controlling the narrative. It's about, if you look at, for instance, Bonnie Henry, I believe, um, her she was kind of like a hero. The rest of the country was hearing about how great she was doing with BC. Yeah. She was even in, yep. I think, the New York Times about it. You mm-hmm. know, and so... 
Was that because of the great work uh, controlling the pandemic in BC? Was it partly crafting a narrative by keeping certain information? Who knows? But the point is, is that I always put it back to a political consideration. They don't want to roll everything out in case it makes them look bad. They, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not uncommon to control messaging to be to spin it to the ends that you want to achieve. And so, the more information out there in the ether, the more information people have access to, it's harder to control a set narrative. It's harder when people have access to everything. But we're at the stage in the pandemic where we don't care about narratives. We're only going to reelect, I hope, people who managed this well, who trusted us to give us the best information and the best clear evidence-based guidance they could and put their political considerations aside. Ontario is in a terrible situation right now, partly because the Doug Ford show was just that. It was a bunch of folksy stuff and mixed messages and loopholes. It never felt like we've ever been fully locked down, but it doesn't feel like we've ever not been locked down. We're now called the lockdown capital of North America. That's right. So, yeah. you know, there's no doing a show for political purposes and pandering to the base and trying to carefully craft a narrative to the point of not giving good public health information, uh, I think is going to be a political misstep for everyone who's doing it. We want to get out of this thing, and then we'll pick who gets to lead us going forward. We don't need to be, like, there's a campaign stop happening here in Ontario. Yesterday, uh, that Ford made, signing these big uh, things full of ventilators that were going to India. He shouldn't even be out of his house. We're on a lockdown order. (laughs) You know. Mixed messaging, to say the very least. Laura Babcock, I have to leave it there. I am very grateful for your time, especially on Mother's Day, and I know you have other commitments, I'm sure. So we do appreciate this very much, and I look forward to an opportunity to pick this conversation up because this is far from over. Wonderful. Stay safe. Happy Mother's Day. Same to you. Laura Babcock, owner of the Power Group Communications Company in Ontario. I wish it was for a better reason, but it's a, a, a true pleasure to say good morning to Christopher Gaze, the artistic director for Bard on the Beach. Christopher, hello. Welcome back. Good morning. How nice to talk to you again, Sterling. It's been a while, Chris, and it's it's good to have you with us. Unfortunately, the news you bring with you is mixed, and the, the, the big message is, unfortunately, for the second year in a row, Bart on the Beach has had to cancel in-person performances. Flesh this one out for us, please, Christopher. Well, yes, um, the complexity of it is, uh, as, as you and, and your listeners might imagine, uh, for Bard, we have a massive build to do. When we build our site, it, uh, it takes, gosh, six, seven, eight weeks. Uh, generally, in a normal season, in normal times, we begin building at the end of March, and then we start to play to the general public at the beginning of June. Right. Th- this year, obviously, it was going to be different. We were going to be smaller. We are going to put a lesser, lesser portion of our site. But we would need to be building now, to go up uh, as we decided to delay the season internally, just delay it uh, because there was just too much mystery until July. But it's just um, uh, for the safety, not only of all our staff building it, all our actors and uh, production people playing it, but for our audience too. We just couldn't see it this far uh, away from it with, with everything that's going on. So we just had to say, that's it for this year, and we're going to uh, uh, put up a virtual production. We're going to uh, actually bring actors together, two of them, 
and rehearse a play that we have commissioned uh, over the past year uh, by Kate Besworth, and that will come out uh, later in the summer. Interesting stuff. It was a kind of a double whammy day that day, Chris, because not only did they announce the cancellation of Bard on the Beach, but also the Festival of Lights fireworks celebrations were canceled on the same day. And then, you know, for those are two big deals for Vancouver people for different reasons, obviously, but equally revered and enjoyed by local folks. So that was a tough day for us all. No surprises, I suppose, Christopher, but just again, a little disappointment that we're not far enough along that this has to be done. So let's Let's turn the tables here and talk about what what Bard on the Beach and your team offers this summer in lieu of in-person Shakespearean performances. Well, there will be this uh, production of uh, of this play, which is all about Shakespeare, uh, Sterling. It's it's about the relevancy of Shakespeare, which I think is a bold idea of Kate Besworth, the writer, uh, and, um, and bold of Bard, too, to put it out there to say, hey, we're a Shakespeare festival, but uh, let's talk about Shakespeare. And let's talk about Shakespeare in 2021. And uh, how does he fit into our world? And so this play, very insightfully and very entertainingly, uh, discusses that. And uh, how you can adapt Shakespeare and you can, how you can make him, uh, his works uh, relevant to now and shine as brightly as they've shone for over 400 years. Along with all that, we've got a huge education portfolio, which we've done for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Much of it, of course, was virtual last year, and that's what it'll be this year. But much of it, because of a lot of support we get from individuals and foundations, comes out to young people free gratis and for nothing. A lot of it does, uh, which is a, a, a a wonderful thing to do and uh, can keep everyone engaged and new people uh, discovering Shakespeare. Yeah, and are there going to be any summer camps or just specifically youth-oriented activities uh, by Bard this season, Christopher? Totally, uh, but they'll be online. Our young Shakespeareans, which have been going for, I don't know what it is now, 27, 28 years, right, yeah. um, uh, they, they, they'll be on for sure, and, uh, and people will be able to sign up for those, sign up. Their, uh, their youngsters for that. And, 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 and kids have loved this for, uh, for all this time. So there's all kinds of ways to engage with us, conversations with, uh, I have conversations with uh, uh, people in the theater uh, across Canada, around the world, and other people do as well. So there's, you just have to go to our webpage to discover all this as the summer goes on, and we'll be sending notifications. We have a huge audience, as you know, a hundred thousand mm-hmm. people for years have come to Barn on the Beach every sure. year. And so uh, there'll be a lot of sadness, just as you say. Um, but it is what it is at the moment. And uh, I feel a great sense of optimism. I don't know about you, Sterling, but I feel that, uh, I, and I believe uh, that uh, come the, perhaps should we call it the late summer, uh, we're going to see a different, a difference, a real difference here and I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the great things that come later in the year. And then this time next year, when we'll put the side up and uh, we will play again. All right. I love that never say die attitude. Christopher Gaze, always appreciate a few moments of your time. Thanks for joining us again this morning and keep your chin up. Thank you. And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers that are tuning in. Take care. Indeed. Christopher Gaze, the artistic director of Bard on the Beach.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.